Welcome to All The Things, a podcast for moms seeking an inspired life. Hi, I'm your host, Lisa Chin. I am a writer and a coach, and my most passionate truth is that the world needs the real you. That's why I created this podcast, to discover all the things that make us who we are, because the better we understand ourselves, the more good we can do in the world. So let's do that together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode with Mira Rao. I am really excited to have her here on the podcast and speak about embodiment, resilience, trauma, and a whole host of other things. And before we get started, I wanted to first acknowledge that I am podcasting and speaking from the traditional and unceded territories of the Nipmuc and Massachusetts Massachusetts people. Um, And today's land acknowledgement is really relevant for me because we are, it is my evening of the day where Ukraine has been invaded. And this idea of land is, it is such a concept that in modern day, it feels like there's this idea of ownership. And yet when you talk to Native people, it's about relationship with the land. It's not about owning. And so I'm tapping into that really beautiful relationship that I have learned about from Indigenous people and how the land is not ours to own but ours to relate to and to be with. So um, I'd like to introduce Mira. She is an embodiment and resilience coach. She is on a mission to contribute to building a world in which people are confident in the wisdom of their bodies, consciously and intentionally resilient with the ups and downs of life and empowered to live the lives they actively choose rather than reactively inherit. She does all of this by teaching her clients practical ways to develop routines and rituals for embodied resilience that help them deal better with challenges and stress so they can start moving towards what they truly want in their lives. Mira, I'm so excited for you to be here. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa, and that beautiful, we call them welcome to country uh, over here, the land acknowledgement, and that was just, yeah, really beautiful and instantly goosebump raising for me you know to address the reality of what we're all experiencing collectively with what's happening in the world today yeah thank you and I'm really excited to be here with you and look forward to this chat thank you um so you know that season two that we're in right now is all about unlearning Mm -hmm. and I want to just dive right in and ask you how would you describe this idea of unlearning awesome question so Looking at it through my sense, I mean, it can be, you know, my area is trauma and it was, again, so interesting to hear you talk about land and one of the biggest areas of trauma that gets experienced is kind of displacement. You know, it's one of the hugest ones that really impacts people um, and has impacted people historically across so many cultures and and as part of my own history and I think that the unlearning that this generation is doing and I've personally been doing is really about unlearning the patterned ways the culturally indoctrinated ways of suppressing trauma 
and humanity. And it's quite confronting to some people of previous generations to hear us speak out about this, you know, to say, no, I am actually going to talk about my emotions. I'm going to talk about my sensations. I'm going to talk about how I feel and what's happened to me and not just zip the, the, you know, kind of zip the lips and, and hold it all in. So that's, that's how I see it. I think that's interesting that you're bringing it back to this idea of land, because I was actually having a conversation with a coworker about not displacement per se, but just the fact that we we get, we are mobile people now. I mean, like nomadic to the utmost sense, right? Back in the day, people moved, but the idea that humans are moving all around the world, they're not growing up with the communities that they grew up in. They're not where they were almost like biologically developed to be in. We're also moving as like single people and not with the people who we were with, like who we grew up with. And I feel like all of that, plays a role in like this feeling of I don't know if displacement would be the word but this feeling of being somewhere that is new and the all those feelings that come from Mm. from that experience which is really foreign to our ancestors way 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 back in the day when they couldn't travel you know so Mm. quickly and so far yeah I just what came up for me as you were talking was like yeah ungrounded you think about the words about that experience right and and the words we associate with not feeling so good we don't feel good when we're ungrounded and what is that literally it's like having feet on the earth having a place and our disconnection from land our disconnection from a sense of place from each other from communities we can see the impact it's having you know it's like the the state of the world where we're at and it's as much as I love and embrace the gifts of technology, I, I don't hate it. I love it. You know, our, our intertwining of our physical beings with our technology and our disconnection of our physical beings with nature is really not how we are meant to live. And it's not serving us. We can see it in the kind of so-called mental health crisis that we're experiencing at the moment. Um, something else that I thought of when you were talking yeah, it's just sense of the reason why I talk about displacement is because I think about I'm trying to make a connection as we talk with the current mobility that you're talking about. Like even when we were nomadic, we've always had nomadic peoples. There was tribe and there was connection and there was still connection to nature in that, in that it was seasonal or cyclical. And I guess it's when it's that disrupted, disconnected experience. And so in the past, that has come also through war, you know, and in my own history, my grandmother is Armenian and there was a genocide, Turkish came in and the Armenian diaspora. And, you know, I'm really, that's a big focus for me is unpeeling my inherited, learned fear of being in the world because of that experience. And my, my grandmother, not only that, she was also married to a Hindu in Pakistan during partition. And so again, they had to flee from that land. And um, I just think we want to relearn perhaps, you know, looking at the flip side of unlearning, relearn how to have a sense of community connection 
belonging and maybe relearn how to, as you said so beautifully, be in relationship with place and our planet. I love that idea of that just bringing it back to that word ungrounded. I love playing with words. So this just mm-hmm. makes me look at that word in a very different light. The fact that it's so connected to where we place our feet, where we lay our bodies at night, where we rest mm-hmm. our heads. Um, and it, it also is this, this juxtaposition of technology and nature and how mm-hmm. we seek connection nowadays where I mean, this is lovely, right? To be able to meet you over Zoom and to have conversations like this, which we never would have been able to, you know, long ago. And yet at the same time, knowing that this um, is something that some that some may see as a replacement for real connection mm-hmm. and that being a very, I don't want to say dangerous thing, but unnatural for our bodies Mm. yeah it's an interesting one because I remember when I first started really coming into the online world you know making connections through the online world and having a conversation with someone because for some people maybe they've got chronic pain or social anxiety or things that block them from going out. There's a, an incredible gift, you know, like we were talking about where you can actually meet and connect. But I think on a physiological level, I mean, I know (laughs) there's a lot, there's, (laughs) there's a lot we can do powerfully. And I do a lot of healing work with people online, you know, I do, but something happens in your body when you are next to and in the room with another human being that doesn't happen when it's a, when it's through pixels and a screen and a, you know, that that's definitely true. There's a, there's a different aspect to it. Um, and there's also the aspect of the actual impact of technology on our bodies, which has kind of got me interested in how that disrupts natural cycles and, Mm -hmm. Uh, our yeah our connection to ourselves it's such a great point when you were talking about the, the how being in the same room and helping someone and having discussions and whatnot is very different I think about them babies right baby like as infants we needed we need touch we need mm-hmm. to be in the presence. If we received the same amount of care, quote unquote, with a robot, we wouldn't survive. And we're just big babies at the end of the day, right? We're programmed and wired pretty much the same way. So when we're talking about the need for people, our I feel like our brains may think, may want to think that we're, we don't need it, um, whether it's because of trauma, whatever it may be. Um, probably because from, I don't know, um, you're the expert on that one, but, but at the end of the day, like we, are, we are still wired the same way. We don't all of a sudden, because we turned, you know, 25 or 30 or 40, we don't require human touch and relationship. Yeah. hundred percent. It's so true. You probably are familiar with those experiments. Like it's so documented now with, 
the I can't remember off the top of my head the name of the experimenters and all the stuff, but those baby monkeys that were raised with wire mothers and the failure to thrive of orphans when they weren't receiving touch. And I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that's a process that just suddenly stops when you're not a child anymore. That's absolutely, as biological creatures, the impact of touch on the, on the human organism, baby, teenager, adult, older person is undeniable, right? The, the power of a hug. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's trauma so much, um, your, your question as well, where you were like that, that makes us think that we don't need it. Actually, no, you may be right. There's an aspect of that that I, I just see so much of this and particularly at the moment with the state of the world, I'm like so much of this is cultural. It really is, you know, like and the deeper reasons behind why our culture's gone in this direction is probably beyond our scope, I don't know, but, you know, philosophically. But, you know, that that is the case, that we have a culture that's mechanistic, individualistic, capitalistic, and has kind of started to view humans as machines, right, since the Industrial Revolution. So not only are we interacting with machines, but we're trying to pretend like we are machines as well. And I think that that trauma does help, you know, in a, in a very horrible use of the word help, but help us to fall into compliance with that kind of story and conditioning because of the disconnection that it creates early on. But the trauma in many, many cases has come from that in the first place. Yeah, it's kind of a self-perpetuating, self-feeding machine, you know, yeah. that the, it needs the system needs people to be compliant and therefore they create situations and circumstances that create compliant people and then it just and then it also then it passes down from generation to generation and from person to person and oh it's a big messy web before we get really deep um i'd love for you to describe what trauma is because i feel like there's one of my big unlearnings was really understanding what trauma is Mm, well, I'd love to hear your definition too, but um, the way I understand it and define it, there's so many ways and I, I always find it a, a, a tricky question to, to answer, And um, but it's always useful to start with defining something. I really just see it as the end effect, I guess, of having an experience that on a human level that has overwhelmed our capacity and this is where resilience comes in that's overwhelmed our capacity to meet it it's been stressful to a point that the system has shut down essentially and gone can't deal and there's been no anchor point or safety following whatever it was that was going on to allow the system to come back to equilibrium or you know to, to homeostasis and so even people now, like with that kind of broader definition, you know, stress, being chronically stressed is traumatic because you're just constantly pressing on the nervous system, pressing, and you're overwhelming the, the capacity of the re- resilience. And I love, you know, people that are listening because you can't see what I'm doing, but like I put my fingers together. It's such an embodied, I talk through the body a lot. You know, we can, 
I've done it. I think, you know, you can stack things onto the fingers and they hold and they hold and they can bend one way and they can bend the other way and you stack too much on, you know, and that's trauma to me, that moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. It it reminds me, I don't know if um, they had this game where you were growing up, but it reminds me of this. I think it was like, I remember the commercials for it. It was like this penguin game where there was like a cloth and you put marbles on it and then eventually you know the marbles would break the cloth and it was the ice and it went and then oh. you know whoever did it I guess would lose or whatever never had it I just remember the commercials for it but that just makes me think of it it's just like it that stress and then at some point it just psh, you literally your marbles are lost <laughs> um, <laughs> you lose your marbles I love that Yeah, because a lot of people think, and, you know, one-off incidences of trauma, you know, accidents and really intense things, that that also, but I just love all the big thinkers around trauma these days with Bessel van der Kolk and Peter Levine, and they talk about if you have that belonging, that place to go, that sense of connection and safety afterwards, it doesn't have to traumatise you. You know, there's a capacity where you can process, the body can release and things can move through. The tra- when, it's, when it becomes somebody's traumatized, there's a stuckness there, you know, and there wasn't safety following the overwhelming experience. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, when I, the very simple explanation that I try to share um, is and this is mostly from Kimberly and Johnson's classes that I've taken with her, but it's just like, it's too much too soon. Um, mm. I think there's one other two related to it, but it's basically that overwhelm that you speak of yeah. and it could be a ton of chocolate cake and you love chocolate cake, but if it's all this, if you have a whole cake shoved in your mouth at one time, like it's still traumatizing. So it's not mm. necessarily anything that's bad. It could be that, you know, you have a child who, you know, they're surprised at their birthday party. That's a great event. At the same time, they can have that experience because that's just too much for their system to handle. Mm-hmm. So I think that's great. Um, the You also talked about embodiment and that is, I hear that word a lot. I'm not sure <laughs> yeah. I've heard a definition of it. And I think that the listener probably if they have embarked a little bit in kind of this realm of, um, of trauma healing, then that word has also come up. And I'd love for you to share kind of your take on what embodiment means. I would really love to, because it's been a conversation I've been having a lot lately because I came personally through a long history of yoga and yoga certainly is an embodied practice that we experience things through the body that we learn. And these are all aspects of embodiment. And again, it's, it's a term, I also have a linguistics background, right? So we can flex and stretch language in different directions and it comes to mean different things. And I love that you're asking for definitions because I think for any conversation, that's a really important part. Well, for our sakes, here's the parameters, you know? And so um, I have a personal take on, on distinguishing between a practice like yoga and what I see embodiment as for me, you know, in my journey and with the people I've learned from some aspects of embodiment are simply the capacity. So this is how probably I would define it. It's that capacity 
to stay with what is happening inside your own body, to know what is happening inside your own body and to have a conscious connection. And this is the key, a conscious connection with what is happening in your own body. So while yoga teaches to be present and to feel and to, to sit through feelings, the reason why, and this is where it really came from in some aspects for me, Lisa, as a yoga teacher, people would say, I can do it in the class. I can have an experience of being inside and being okay with being inside my own body and be connected there while I'm in class. And that's the only place I can do it. I can't transfer that skill out into my life and into the world. I'm still melting down at work. I'm still getting angry at my child. I'm forgetting to take a breath. I'm, I'm not using the tools. And so with embodied practices, which include conscious teaching for me of this is how your body works. This is how the biology of your nervous system works. This is what yoga is doing to your body. This allows a whole new level of safety for people because we're very in the West intellectual, right? We're very in the brain and in the head and that's fine. It's not wrong as embodied creatures, as fully embodied creatures, it's not purely about get out of your head and into your body. It's bring your head and your body together. I'm writing down notes. So bringing the head and the body together. I mean, that's beautiful because when I hear the word embodiment, I think almost like just being in your body. Though the idea that you're sharing is putting the two together and can you share an an example of what you mean by understanding how the body works and this idea of embodiment yeah i'd love to so the biggest theory on the scene today that's really helped with this is the polyvagal uh system of understanding the vagus nerve and we've been looking at the nervous system for a long time and people have been this this knowledge has been accumulating and growing and actually, I was listening to a, a podcast of Stephen Porges, who devised the polyvagal theory a while ago. And he said, it's not like the polyvagal theory is a new thing. It's describing something that we all, it's just putting language to something that we all have intuitively known for a long time in modern science and kind of validating it for ourselves through a scientific lens, you know, like giving it that weight that we as Westerners and, you know, appreciate. So, um, Sorry, what was your question again? An example. example. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, teaching people, okay, I have a vagus nerve and it runs from my brainstem down through my heart and down into my guts and it runs up into um, my face and behind the eyes. And when I get shocked, my vagus nerve does this and my body does this. And when I am calm, my vagus nerve is doing this and I have these different states that all relate. So through the nervous system, I perceive whether I'm in safety or threat and I, my body will automatically then respond to that to try and keep me safe. And if I know what is happening and I know where I am and what state I'm in, what state I am in, where I am on my map, so to speak, of the nervous system. And it's a place that my brain, my integrated head knows 
probably doesn't match the circumstances, then I have the power to then bring myself out. Does that make, does that answer your question? So it is essentially, not essentially, but the way that I am interpreting what you're saying is something happens. And if I can somehow signal to myself that I'm safe, then the brain won't react in a way, or is it the body won't react in a way that signals to me that I am stressed and that there needs to be a response? Uh, Interesting, the brain or the body. I like the distinction of skull brain and body brain. So Mm -hmm. we're all brain and we're all body. So the body and the brain are kind of reacting together. The teaching people how the nervous system works allows them, yes, the power to not necessarily stop it from happening because it's, it is faster. So it's faster than the level of conscious awareness generally for most people, unless maybe you're an enlightened levitating being, you are, <laughs> your brain, your, your cognitions are a bit slower than what Stephen Porsche schools, your neuroceptions. And that would probably be operating more on the level of the body, but still the brain, right? It's the, the nervous system, which is part of the brain. So the nervous system will register something. And the more practice you have, here's the thing, the more practice you have at recognizing the signals and how they show up in the body, the quicker you will identify what is happening. So either you'll be able to identify quickly and that's the regulation piece is offering a cue of safety, what we would call a cue of safety for the body and for the brain. And sometimes... My experience of it in my own process and my experience of others is that if you've regulated already, so that would be having a practice of yoga in the morning like you talked about before we came on on air and and your nervous system has been nourished, proactively nourished, you know, and fed and you've created what we call good vagal tone. So the vagus nerve is flexible and, and responsive and not, stuck you know we talked about trauma being a kind of stuck experience then you may have that capacity already to be going to be more attuned to looking for cues of safety you know in the environment around you so that's why practice helps us because it puts us in a state that makes our radar so to speak more tuned to look for that however if we've woken up and we haven't had the time and we're a bit more stressed then maybe if we've been practicing and we have that conscious knowledge of how the nervous system works, then the next stage there is, oh, we'll catch it quicker when we've gone into threat, you know. Third stage, if we're overloaded and we're kind of in a, in a bit of a stress pattern, the, the hopeful aspect through the polyvagal system is that we will forgive ourselves much more quickly. Oh, of course, my body was registering threat. It wasn't doing anything weird. I was doing exactly what a body in threat, you know, will do. Okay, now I can apply my tools. It's so interesting because I have, it's really just been since the start of this year that I've started this morning practice because I've been playing around with this idea of time. That's my current unlearning and the idea that I I didn't have time to do certain things for myself. So I've tried to insert this like 20 minute practice in the morning of my work days where in January is mostly breath work. And then this month in February, I've incorporated more yoga and I hadn't 
thought of it in this context in the way that you described it in kind of stretching the polyvagal, you know, system, I, I just thought of it as, oh, I'm just being more mindful. But I notice in the past couple month and a half, the huge difference in how I react to my children, how I react mm-hmm. to stress, um, and just my overall mood and my capacity, right, to be able to take in that, those experiences. So I I really appreciate how you explained it in this context because I ha- actually have never heard of it that way and it makes a lot of sense and it's just another way of looking at why this practice is so beneficial. Exactly. That was one of the most beautiful things because I come from a yoga background, like a family, my Armenian on one side, Indian on the other side. So I have yoga teachers and practitioners you know, going back a long time. And it's a a practice that I was really passionate about. And I had a lot of trauma and I was noticing that while yoga was supporting, supporting me and, and nourishing me, I didn't know why. And I always want to know why. (laughs) I always want to understand why. And when I began to understand why it amplified the power of the practice so much. And it helped with that thing that I was talking about before, where I was then able to go, oh, well, how do I apply it functionally in the moment in my day? What am I doing? And I'll give you a a specific example that for me personally, I was like, holy crap, when my teacher taught me. This is a a woman called Dr. Ariel Schwartz, if anyone wants to look her up. She's a somatic psychologist in Boulder, Colorado. Incredible work. Lots of stuff on uh, post-traumatic growth. And um, she talks about how she breaks it down so beautifully that, for example, if you are turning your head in a yoga pose, so we do a lot of rotations across the center line of the body and you might do a twist and then you're going to look and you're going to take your eyes over the shoulder, you know, and then you might do it the other direction and take the eyes over the shoulder. And she said the optical nerve um, at the back of the eyes then attaches to the brain stem where there's an area of the brain called the pons and the pons is kind of responsible for, um, for processing memory story, all that sort of stuff. So when you're doing this movement and you're kind of offering nourishment, stimulating the pons, you're helping yourself essentially have like the experience that you would have thinking about the eyes going from side to side when you're asleep, when you've got rapid eye movement going on and when you're processing through your dreams. So if you do that movement with that knowledge and that intention of what it is that you are doing, oh, I can bring that in. I can go now, oh, I'm going to give myself the experience. It feels like I've got some unprocessed material. Let's bring it into the body. Let's think about it. Let's do a twist. Let's take the eyes. Ah, okay. I know what I'm doing as I do it. And that just like, I don't know, for me, that was, it, it amplified, as I said, the power, you know, what you were talking about with your experience, like, oh, I've noticed it's kind of really having an impact, but then to also know, ah, this is why is so empowering. Now, would you say that any kind of movement movement can do it or is it particularly yoga that is you know that provides that kind of benefit 
I would say that it's bringing intention. So any kind of movement is going to be positive. I, I have a little, another little phrase, which is movement is medicine. So on a, on a basic biological, physiological level, moving is going to encourage circulation. It's going to show, you know, show you, oh, wow, that muscle's been really holding tight there. It's going to be. But I remember when I first started teaching yoga and I was teaching a few classes in gyms and stuff and these big bulky guys would come in and, you know, lots of movement there, lots of exercise, lots of pumping and big muscles. And they would not have the same kind of nervous system and even muscular system. Like at that time I was more interested in that. I was like, oh, they can't hold in the same way because the way the muscle fibers have laid down through that kind of exercise is different. But it wasn't having the impact. That movement certainly would have helped them feel more buoyant and better. We know that there's endorphins that are released and all that kind of stuff, but it wasn't bringing that softening to the nervous system they were getting quite agitated that you know that they were struggling in the yoga practice for example first thing you know that we know we start to learn in yoga class and again one of the things dr ariel schwartz talked about is that so mindful attention and awareness when you when you pay attention to the body uh This is the research of a neurobiologist called Dr. Candice Pert. And she found that when you bring awareness to the body there, she called it a shower of neurochemicals. So it doesn't matter what you're feeling in the body. If you pay attention to it, your body will respond positively by releasing, I think it's um, two types of hormones. I've forgotten exactly which ones, but painkillers so you have this inbuilt reward system for simply paying attention and if you think about that so paying attention to what you're feeling in the movement then also stimulates the brain to release these chemicals that make you feel more relaxed and make you feel less stressed all that stuff so so mindful movement does it going back to these these kind of like bigger guys i mean obviously you did you probably didn't have conversations with them. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm just kind of riffing off this idea though of, okay, let's say, is it, is it because their history of movement was probably one that was more aggressive and it was less mindful that didn't allow them to have that kind of softening and that buoyancy that was happening? Yeah. I think that um, when that's been my, this is, this is not science now. This is just my personal observation. So, but my experience of um, working out in a fast and hard way won't give you, it will give you beautiful benefits. Don't get me wrong. And I would never want to say, don't do that. But it doesn't do what mindful present movement will do and actually interestingly because I was listening to another podcaster that I love and he was he loves working out and boxing and he was talking about that day he was like oh I've done a day of like somatic work and yoga today and it's so different from working out at the gym you know he's like you know how annoying those yoga people are like floating around all peaceful I'm one of them today (laughs) (laughs) and he was saying that he said 
No, yoga, that kind of movement will bring you into presence with your body in a way that, you know, you can work out in that way. That's the thing, but most people don't, Mm. you know? So that's one of the things I do when I did more work previously, before I took it more in the kind of um, psychological trauma direction and and kind of experience of somatic work, I worked a lot lot with people around... um, movement programs and um, therapeutic movement programs. And that's one of the first things that I would teach people to do is I've got a little dumbbell, but you know, when you do that movement, like you can do it like that, just like aggressively hack it around, not thinking, or you can do it slowly with presence aware of every little fiber of muscle feeling through the sensation. And it will give you such a different benefit, both physically and then on the nervous system slash emotional level as, as we were describing. Mm. And that makes me think also, you can also do yoga mindlessly too. So at the same time, just because it's yoga doesn't mean that you're checking the box and it's mindful and present and all of that, because there's certainly teachers or classes or things or approaches that, or personal approaches that don't give you that kind of benefit. 100% 100% right like that's been one of my little bugbears of of seeing it become a purely physical practice you know when it came over into the west is that it, it got very yang it got very dynamic and there's beautiful like not that dynamic practices are, are, are wonderful but there became an emphasis on the physicality of it only and yeah and you can see you can see if someone is like oh yeah I do yoga but excuse my French you know they're a wanker it's like well it's not really <laughs> egotistical wanker it's like oh okay you know stressed out and screaming at their um, employees you know it's like "Mm, yeah I'm not sure I want to do that practice (laughs) yeah I I do I mean I I certainly have not been doing yoga as long as you have and my my depth of experience is not so much however um, when I first started practicing it was at it was at gyms and you kind of mentioned you were at a gym but that was it was in New York and it was when the, when there weren't a lot of studios. So there were good teachers in gym still. And there were teachers reading kind of mm. poems or I don't know if they're scriptures or they're, um, but there's, there were like different sutras and, and things like that, that were really touching. And that really brought the practice mind, body, and soul kind of full mm. circle. And that's what I really miss about yoga is this element of, of we're here, we're present, we're doing this, but it's also about something much bigger. And that's what I really love about it. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you are an embodiment and resilience coach. And we touched on resilience a bit, but again, I would love for you to kind of share your take on what that means. Going back to that image of, you know, fingers touching and if we overload the weight and they break, resilience is about establishing uh, practices that buffer the underside of those fingers. So it is about creating, because I see, I see trauma as, okay, it's, there's a constant balance going on because stress is not a bad thing, right? Stress. And you talked about that too. It's like these things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, And we want a bit of stress. We want a bit of mobility. We want a bit of energy. We want a bit of activation in the world. 
So, and we want to be engaged in doing things. So we've got stresses, things that, you know, are putting pressure on something to happen. And then we've got resources to meet those stresses, you know, and we've got this balance. And I see resilience as being able to meet, you know, to flex and meet the demands of the stresses so that we don't have, when trauma happens is when the, the pressure of the stresses overwhelms the buffering of the, the resources. So resilience is about understanding, okay, how do I resource myself more to meet those stresses and how do I replenish and, and be um, more intentional about that and on a physiological level, it's about helping the nervous system to do that. So it's about when we become more conscious of how the nervous system works, we want the nervous system to do the same thing, to go, oh, we want to actually have a bit more energy and mobility and activation in the nervous system. So that's kind of the, the purview of the sympathetic nervous system. Oh, okay. And now we want to down, regulate down into the the door what we would call in the polyvagal system the dorsal vagal aspect the parasympathetic nervous system as we don't want stuckness is trauma right so stuckness is is when someone can't actually go through flexibly the different states of their nervous system that they need to meet the demands of their lives being able to do that is resilience Mm. what would be an exercise that would help you develop resilience? So many, but if we're talking on the nervous, <laughs> on the nervous system level, I mean, think if I, I'd like to actually see if I can think back to my client conversations from this week and talk about a really, okay. So really specific one, I, um, just because you mentioned about for you, resourcing with yoga and how you've noticed your stress with work and with your kids. And a lot of my clients are are similar, like it's working mothers and they're trying to juggle those balances and they want to be more present to their kids and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, my client had she came, she, she was noticing emotional dysregulation, her five-year-old daughter, and she was beginning to notice it more in herself as well. My daughter goes into a panic, melts down. I can't cope with it. I get overwhelmed. Then I feel bad about how I'm showing up. You know, right. So to build the resilience in that context and um, I'll come and talk about the result in a minute. So We have done with her one of the exercises, the fastest way, and I don't like this terminology, but the fastest way to quote unquote, I'm not even going to use it. It's mechanistic. People talk about hacking, you know, biohacking and stuff. I don't, I don't like that concept very much um, because we're not machines, we're organic beings. So the the, the best and most efficient way to really intervene if the nervous system is in a state of threat and to build resilience in terms of the nervous system, as we were talking about earlier, being able to move is through the breath. So you talked Mm -hmm. about breath work. So the simple stuff that lots of people are starting to know 
And I like to do that. I like to really encourage people to use tools that they know already and are really accessible. That box breathing, you know, breathe in for four, breathe out for six, for like five counts. Boom. This will build your resilience because it will build the capacity for your nervous system to move through states, to come out of sympathetic fight flight. And you can do it proactively. You can use it to nourish your system in the morning. You can do it a different type of breathing in the morning. You can do it um, as a, so I call that resourcing. If you do it proactively in the morning, and then if you do it in the moment where stress has arisen, I call that regulating. Mm. And so her and I did a few different practices. That's one example. And I just wanted to say, um, so I had a session with her yesterday and I'm just feeling the glow of it. She was like, mirror, mirror, mirror. The, the school teacher um, rang me and my daughter, I won't say her name. Um, apparently this year she said she's just been so much better with her emotions and she said to me, whatever it is that you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. So that was a big, long story. I'm sorry. I just so wanted to tell that story because I'm still joyful. Big long story to say, you know, to build that resilience, a very simple, simple, because we want to overcomplicate. I'm a massive overcomplicator. We want to overcomplicate things, but that simple three sighs, take a breath. And there are many, there are a, a huge plethora of other tools, but that's a really simple, accessible one for people to begin using. Yeah. I would never, I, I do not accept your apology because I, I don't, I think that stories are the way that we learn. So you take as much time as you want in describing <laughs> that. And I had never actually thought of when I get in that state of, of high emotions at my tantruming child, that that's a state of stuckness because it mm. is, because I, because it, I can see that now where I'm flipping out and I'm kind of like aggravated and I can't pull myself out of it. And I would have just thought I was kind of unregulated in a sense, but I never would have actually thought I was kind of stuck in that, in that state. So thank you for that, because that really makes me, and and I think that also is transferable. It's not just as a parent, right? That, that type of stuckness is transferable in the, in doing our work, in our relationships with other people, not just children, and how we operate in the world. Like if we're in the car and someone cuts us off and we, you know, we start cursing at them and, and you know, get driving and just we're in that state of heightened anger or whatever it yes. may be, um, then, or, or even fear if you're on the receiving end. <laughs> um, but that is that state of stuckness. I had never thought of it that way. Mm, that's 100%. And I like how you fed it back to me. I'm I'm learning as well and thinking, yeah, because it is, it's like, in some of the polyvagal practitioners talk about having a nervous system state that's a home away from home. So if you think about three main states, the ventral vagal is our positive, most positive state where we're open and we're feeling connected and we're relaxed. Then there's the sympathetic, that's the angry fight flight, which many people know about. And then there's the dorsal vagal, which is the primal collapse, just like freeze response. I can't do anything, you know, when nothing else has worked. And often being stuck is we have this home away from home. So we'll, we'll end up living in a sympathetic state or we'll end up living in a dorsal state and we'll go there really quickly and we'll stay there for long periods of time. And building resilience is reversing that. 
it takes us a lot longer to get to those states and we come out of them a lot more quickly. Mm. It's our home away from home because we feel safe there because at some point we developed a pattern that made us think that that was something that would protect us. Yes. Mm. That's beautiful. This idea of trauma is in, you know, we talked about this before we started recording this idea of trauma, I feel like is so built into who we are, how we respond. And the the embodiment techniques and the resilience that you're instilling into into with your clients and the work that you do is so such a big part of this unlearning this unraveling of this trauma and i so appreciate your taking all the time to really define those things because those words are so out in the ether right now. And there are so many ways to describe it. And I think that, you know, I think what's really great is we have the ability to define things in many different ways because it resonates with people, how it resonates with them. Um, The, this is such a core element I think to being human today, mm. we are going through so much and we've gone through so much, like just with an- ancestors and, and intergenerational stuff. Um, if you were talking to someone who's kind of just first embarking on this idea, like, oh, mirrors all of a sudden open me up to <laughs> this whole world that's out there. How do they get started? Like, where do they, where do, where do they start looking for information or for help or for support? Okay, great. So you're talking about um, someone working with me or someone like resources that I can guide people towards out in the world. If someone were coming to you and they said, I, how do I get started with this? And, oh, okay. You know, how would it look like for me to understand this and and solve it i you know what if it's whether it's the emotional regulation whether it's whether it's parenting whether it's trying to be uh, successful in the work that they do how how would you like guide them through that process so i work also psychotherapeutically which means i work meeting people where they're at which means that each person it's an individual journey and what will work for one person will be different and there are kind of different ways but or and all that said the foundation starts with looking at the relationship with self so where are you in terms of how you feel about yourself how you talk to yourself how you treat yourself how you support yourself This is the foundation. If that's not there, we can't do anything else. And I don't do deep trauma work with people um, until we have some of those practices and foundations in place, Um, unless there's a need. But generally speaking, okay, because once you start to go into the deep, what did you call that? The unraveling, you know, and letting the issues out. One of my teachers says the issues are in the tissues and you let the issues come out of the tissues. You want people to feel this is the resilience aspect that they can cope with that, you know, that they are resourced enough to go, all right, 
I'm going to let stuff out. I'm going to feel weird. I might be more emotionally dysregulated for a moment. I might remember things that I had forgotten. I might have deep insights. I might be crying for a day. Like it's, it's deep work. It creates big, deep work and shifts. So I would generally start with people getting resourced and teaching them about the stuff we talked about. I think that's a great resource. All right, I'm going to teach you about the nervous system because once we start going into letting it come unstuck and you start releasing stuff and you start reshaping it, you're going to feel that much safer as you go through that process. So that's that's a little bit how I shape the journey you know, the, the journey that I offer to people, because if we can't, we've got working with people from traumatic backgrounds, the issue has been safety. So I'm always about safety first. So safety in the body, in the yoga practice, safety in the, in the therapy, therapeutic context and relationship between us and safety for them in their sense of beginning to build a bit of confidence in their own resources and their own resilience. That's really beautiful. I hadn't thought of kind of, the knowing of self to be a sign of a contributor to resilience. Mm. But that makes sense because of that home away from home. Like if we can be home in our bodies and with who we are, then that does build that resilience. That's really beautiful. And you point to another part that the not knowing who we are is a result of that trauma. Mm. Absolutely. Or having a false sense, right, of who we are. Because exactly. Mm. Oh, yeah. Our coping strategies, our false identity. Our, yes, yes. I could, we could talk about that for another five hours, I think. <laughs> I, I love that we met serendipitously through George Gao's um, class and I have to thank George for holding that class and for allowing me to meet you because this was really just a brilliant conversation. I really appreciate what you've shared. It has made me look at this world that I've been immersed in in a way, in a, in a very different way. So I just really appreciate the time, the stories, the kind of everything that you've, you've shared with us. Um, if I can ask you one last question, if you could share kind of any parting words for the listener or a not parting but words of um as they continue on this journey and until they come across you again sure that would be my absolute pleasure the topic that's been up for me lately that has arisen, I think, out of people's experience over the last couple of years and right now and um, is that that capacity that you and I have just talked about to be with yourself, you know, to, to learn to be deeply with yourself brings possibility that we can individually heal, that we can contribute to the healing of the planet. And my own experience, and I have enough experience of seeing others do it, 
is that it it really is possible and it really is there and please hold on to your hope. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, and then how can people find you and learn about what you do um, and follow you and get in contact with you? Beautiful. So I do quite a bit of psychoeducation on social media, Facebook and LinkedIn primarily. I have a public facing page and my profile where I just try to share these ideas as much as I can. I do have a a group on Facebook as well that people are welcome to join and that's more practical so people can actually learn some of the specific tools that I talk about. And I have my website as well. I'm assuming you're going to put links to all this, so I'm just sort of referencing them. Yeah. So um, Facebook is the place where I probably put the majority of the material so they can just friend me. I just, I'm very much about real contact. So the easiest way is just to find me on Facebook friend me and send me a dm and then i can like connect and you know whatever they want to know about but if they want you know also if they're want to more observe from a distance just go follow the page and you know check me out and see if you like it or not or whatever if you're interested in my ideas yeah love that take it at your own pace exactly oh yes (laughs) (laughs) take what you like and leave the rest Mumir, thank you. It's really been a pleasure. I I hope that the listeners take in this information and then take another listen because I think it deserves it. Oh, thank you. Thank you uh, so much for the gift of this time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in today. Living an inspired life is a worthy endeavor. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Be sure to subscribe in your preferred podcast player for future real conversations. And if any part of this episode made you think of a friend, let them know that they aren't alone in their journey and share all the things with them. If you'd like to stay in touch, hop on over to lisaforreal.com and sign up for my daily blogs or find me on Instagram at Reclaiming Motherhood. See you next time.